the Alfie Wattam podcast. Intro to, to the panel. Um, let's give them all a, a lovely clap um, for each person, please. I won't do myself. I've already introed me. Uh, we've got Kit, Mr. Kitkite, who is a CEO of CheckIt. Uh, CheckIt is a publicly listed software dev tech company. So the CEO of a, of a tech company on the stock market. I mean, if that is not a cool business card, then I don't know what is. So uh, can we give a little hand for Kit, please, as he joins us on stage? And you get to pick your seat, sir, one of these. I'll save the cheap seat for myself. Okay. Uh, we also have Chris, Mr. Chris Parsons. He's a co-founder of Lollipop. Lollipop is an AI shopping app. Um, forget Getter, forget Uber Eats, forget Deliveroo. It's a little bit different anyway. But um, AI powering the future of late-night 2 a.m. orders from Sainsbury's. Chris, let's give him a hand, please, as he joins us on stage. And of course, we've got Kimishan Nadu, who's a CTO of BTLBX, which is a climate tech sustainability, literally saving the world. Um, also was a co-founder of Unibuddy, which some people may know in the edtech space. Um, Forbes 30 under 30, well known in the tech, tech scene. You've got your blog, Nadu Notes, where you're writing all, all about what's happening with, with tech and, and engineering. Let's give him a hand as he joins us on stage, please. Cool. Everybody on the stage, and probably everybody in the audience, has experience growing software engineering teams and businesses and cultures and hiring and diversity and all that stuff. So keen to, to delve into, I guess, your insights and how you would recommend others to do the same, because you guys are maybe one, two, three, four, five, ten steps ahead of some of the people in the audience. So any advice inspiration, whatever that you can give to them, the better, really. We'll start with the first question on that topic then. So let, let's explore hiring for a second. Let's explore building a culture, building an engineering team, building a tech community that is high performing, they're 10Xers, they're ready to go, they're not underperforming, they are the top 1% of the, of the 10X coders, right? How do we do it? Like, what, what would be each of your like, number one insights for building a tech team, building a high-performing engineering culture, hiring, retention, all of that good stuff. We'll, we'll spend a minute or two on each of you, please. Uh, Kit, you got the mic. Kick us off close to your mouth, if possible, please. In, in your nicest, clearing, most public-speaking voice, how do we build the best tech team possible? Well, assuming everyone can hear me okay, I would say do it now because there's a lot of talent on the market, which is unfortunate, obviously, with the last year and a half. However... Um, what I saw 20 months ago, 21 months ago, was a very, very competitive environment. And you know, even, even as listed business, there was a reasonable amount of turnover in you know, the uh, engineer. Just speaking about engineering product management teams, a lot of turnover. So now would be a good time to do it. That said, if you are going to do it outside of an opportune window and it's a more competitive environment, I think you need to be quite focused around the nature of the roles, what you actually need to do the work. Because, again, I think what's been demonstrated over the last 18 months is that a lot of companies had a lot more talent or a lot more engineering capacity than they really need to do the work. So I'd say be quite specific, think very lean, and then work with a good external firm to help you. Hello. <laughs> um, we've, we've seen that right across the board, right? It's been everyone from, I would say Twitter, but X and uh, Meta and Google. Everybody's let people go. You're right, the market was flooded. It's still competitive. There's a lot of people out there, but to get to the good people, you're right. This is why we exist. But um, 
Chris, what, what would be your advice for building a culture, mate? I think, I mean, that's the thing I was going to say, actually. The, uh, you, first, you need to know what your culture is. What are the key principles that you want to hire for? Uh, what are the key things about how you exist? And, and I would say that those, uh, there's a lot I could say about this, but they, they're kind of um, in different categories. So there, are, there will be two or three, perhaps, core values that you would go to the wall for, that people will criticize you for, could be taken too far, that differentiate you from your competition. Um, those are the key values to know about, about your team and your company. And there will be other values too, like it's important. Integrity is always a value, but that's really just a minimum standard, not necessarily a value, um, unless you're prepared to really go to the wall for it, in which case it's a core value. So know what those core values are, and then hire people that match those core values and don't hire anyone who doesn't. It, it sounds really obvious, but, but it's so easy when you're in that interview and you just think, oh, they're, but they're really good, but I'm not sure they're really going to fit. Don't hire them because they're the wrong person. And even, especially at the moment when the market is a little bit, it's a little bit easier to find people. I mean, two years ago, we were, we were losing people because, you know, the, they were being offered sort of even three and a half day weeks, let alone four day weeks. I mean, it was, it was nuts. Um, and, and now it's much easier. But I think uh, even then, when, 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 the, when it was really difficult to hire, that's, even, that's when it's even more important to really know the kind of people you want and, and not drop your bar. I would say never drop your bar. Always go for the people who are really going to fit and really going to excel. And if you just have a few less of those people, you will achieve 10, 50 times what you would have done otherwise if you'd had just a few too many people who didn't quite hit your bar. That's the worst mistake you can make. And, and you literally have this on your careers page. Because when I was interviewing your co-founder on our podcast a few weeks back, he was, he was walking me through the careers page. And you have the values literally still on. There was one, like a running one. Do you, do you remember what this is at the top of your head? Kipchoge Not Bolt. That's one of our favorites. So uh, Kipchoge is an incredible marathon runner who managed to run a marathon in under two hours. And he, what's interesting about that is that he, he is clearly not Usain Bolt, right? He is clearly not going to be able to match him in a 100-meter race. But what we said that we want uh, in our team is that we want people who can run, not run as fast as Usain Bolt runs and then burn out after you know, a lap of the track, but it's people who can, who can consistently run four-minute miles um, in what they're good at and what they can do. And if they're able to do that week on week and month on month on month, then they're consistently that good, but able also to sustain that over time, those are the kind of people that we, we want to hire. And we're very explicit about that. Awesome. Let's finish with yourself. Same question, biggest advice, biggest tip, one lesson. Yeah, I, th I think that's all great advice. So not too much to add, but I'd say it's good to have an objective in mind. So when, you, when you're talking about wanting to build a high-performing team or a 10x team, how are you measuring that? And how do you know you've reached that goal? Um, so, so I'm a big fan of the accelerate metrics. Um, if you're looking at building a high-performing squad or engineering team, whether you're a startup or a big company, the currency is usually speed. How quickly can you execute? And I think world-class engineering teams, 10x engineering teams, they're able to, to build things really quickly to add value to your customers. Um, so I think measuring those metrics like deployment frequency, is your team able to release things and ship things multiple times a day or once a month? There's a big difference between that. And I think your hiring needs to be essentially, um, you know, the output of, of the results you're seeing. So if you're, if you're not getting the deployment frequency that's putting you in that category, then it probably means you need better talent density and you need to, to look at your team um, as well. Hey, this podcast is brought to you by welovealpha.com. 
If you're looking to grow and hire and scale your software engineering team in the UK, then go to weloveAlpha.com to hire the best software developers on the market. Everything across Java to C Sharp to PHP to Python to React and Angular and mobile and more. Go to weloveAlpha.com to hire the best software engineers in the UK now. So let, let's say advice is followed. We all build amazing 10x engineering teams, right? Always, we unfortunately get some underperformers. That's just the nature of life. That's the nature of business. There's, uh, you know, for every you know, five people that are doing well. Sometimes, regardless of the culture, there's always going to be at least one person that's, that's not doing as well. Um, let, me, let me just pull the audience for a second. Just, just raise your hand if there is somebody in your team that perhaps is underperforming, who you know, you know, hand on heart, they could be doing more. Just, just show of hands, who, who has got that? Okay. 75% of people are honest, okay? I think everybody knows somebody in their team who could be doing better. Um, let, let's talk about underperformers for, for, for a second, right? I, I hate to use that word, but let, let's call a spade a spade, okay? How do you deal with that? What, what, what would you do in terms of mentoring, coaching, getting them to turn them around? Or would you just, you know, lord sugar them and tell them they're fired? You know, what, what would you do? How would we rephrase this? Um, Chris, why don't, why don't you kick us off, please? please. Um, Interesting. So underperforming is such a pejorative term. I, I prefer thinking about them as someone who doesn't fit whatever you're trying to do, right? So, so what you're trying to do is what you're trying to do. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's the, it's the culture and the values that you put in your team. And somebody is outside of that and they're not hitting the mark. That doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean that they couldn't be even a, as what we might call a 10x engineer in a different organization, but they're just not doing it for you and you know it. So you need to do something. I think it would depend... Going back to what I was saying earlier about values, what type of values they weren't hitting, like what in what way are they not going to hit it? If they're not if they're not hitting your core values, um, you, there's no point trying to coach them. You know, the best thing you can do for both you and them is to find a way to humanely exit them out of your your team as fast as possible, um, because they'll be much happier. Um, ideally, you know, make that possible through severance uh, or whatever you can do in order to to make their lives better by helping them find it somewhere else to go. Um, I think if they are um, not quite hitting you at the values that are perhaps more aspirational that everyone's trying to hit, then I would take a slightly different view about coaching. But I, I've done I've done lots of different things. I've, I've coached people incessantly in the past. I had no progress. I found and I've coached. Uh, you know, I've I've had better progress with other people. But ultimately, these days, I tend to I tend not to coach. I tend to to give feedback early and often as people as people uh, join the company, and then I decide quite early on whether or not it's, it's just a question of a slight realignment or they're just they're just not fitting and it's better for everyone if you make that decision as early as possible i think i'd certainly you know second your point about making it ongoing i mean so many times people are hired and then they think they're doing amazing and then at the three month review they get told they're, they're not working out yeah. i mean if somebody doesn't know that they're doing a good job after a week or two then as a manager as a leader you're probably not giving them what, what you should be giving them right in terms of that feedback and radical candor and, uh, and telling them the truth. That's such an important point. I think we, we do our teams such a disservice if we don't do the awkward thing of giving them timely feedback. And, and actually, I remember reading a tweet, I forget who it was, so I'm not gonna be able to quote them, but basically your job as a, as a leader is to come up with an actionable piece of feedback every week, no matter what, for your team, so that you can find, you know, dig around and find something that you can help them improve with, and also see how they take it. Because if they, even if it's minor and small, and they take it badly, that's a real red flag for me. And that's one of our core values, you know, being open to feedback is super important for us. So, so I think if we haven't given them that feedback, how are they going to know that they're not doing well? That's on us. Yeah. You have the mic. What would your piece of advice be? 
Yeah, I'd say first question that we need to think about if someone's underperforming is, are we setting them up for success? So I think that's an important question because they could be underperforming because you're not setting them up for success. This means that you could not be giving them clear objectives. You might, they might not have the right responsibilities that matches their skill set. They might not have the right resources or mentoring and coaching. So the first step is make sure you're setting them up for success and focus on what you can change first. That's, that's, my, that, that, that's how I've always approached it. However, once you do tick all those boxes and you are confident you're setting them up for success, and if you still see underperformance, um, the mistake I've seen people make is almost infinitely coaching and mentoring. Mm. Um, and you cannot do that. Um, I think at some point you do need to make a tough decision. Um, you do need to say this person's not, not up to the bar that you spoke about. They're, 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 they're not able to, to, to hit the performance we need even though we're setting them up for success and, and you have to make a decision. Um, and I do see a difference, especially between geographies. Um, at Unibuddy, we had, a, we had a team in the US and we had a team in the UK. And I would find in the UK, people tend to infinitely coach a lot more. Whereas in the US, they're much more quicker to be like, no, this is not performing well. We fire. And of course, the, the US market also allows. Like no notice period a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, for me, it's are you setting them up for success and then make a decision quickly, set a deadline. Okay, cool. Uh, Kit's probably a little bit different in your world running like a, a company on the stock market. You know, you've got to be a little bit more careful with, with firing and that sort of thing. But how, how do you deal with people that perhaps need to be turned around and given a, an extra shoulder? Uh, well, it's, it's, I'm probably at risk of coming across as a bit of a P&L driven monster <laughs> here. Um, and I think that's what happens when you're, you're listing because you really are assessed by the numbers. Um, all of the points my two colleagues on stage made are completely valid, but I would say there's three things I'll think about here. It's always a leadership question, and in my view, you're either effective or ineffective as a leader, and that's it. So if the outcomes aren't, aren't happening, then you as a leader and the leaders and the leaders and the people are being ineffective. That means you've got potentially some wider problems inside your organization. I think there's two other things to think about here. We live in a world where people are either fully remote, hybrid, in-person. So you think about performance issues, people are humans, they may have some challenges going on at home. How often are people making the effort to physically meet these people to try and understand what might be driving it? And you know, I was up in Cambridge where our product team is uh, based these last couple of days and just individual walks with people to understand what's going on can make the difference between someone who's just struggling at home, just doing their development work or, and actually getting an insight into what's happening inside the organization. So I think that's quite a valuable tool to use if you're not quite sure. Um, and the other thing is you need to factor in attrition into your hiring system. So don't just assume, oh, I've worked really hard. I've got that hiring. It's perfect. They're going to land. They're going to work. I'll give them OKRs. They're on the right. No, no. assume failure all the time and have that attrition pipeline factored in so you don't end up in that bad situation where you hold on to someone who's wrong because you haven't yet got the replacement lined up. Yeah. So it sounds a bit um, utilitarian, but I think maintaining an attrition pipeline, I, I actually have a sales background and in sales it's far more, it's far more hardcore than it is in, in terms of winning and losing, people being good, people being bad. And the, the principle there is you know, we assume a 35% failure rate with every hire we make, so we have a pipeline accordingly.
Yeah, I mean, anybody that knows anything about recruitment, it's closer to 90% of that, that number. So I, I love what you said there around uh, taking people for a walk, because so often as leaders, what we do is we try and win minds. And we're, you know, tell me about the, the goals, tell me about the progress, tell me about what you're working on. But winning minds is only half of it. You, you've got to win hearts as well, right? And that's where the, the walks are so important. You know, how, how, how are you? How's the weekend? And whenever you ask a staff member, how are you? The first thing they're going to say is, oh, yeah, this project is going great. No, 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 stop. I don't want to hear about the project. How are you? How's the missus? How's the kids? You know, it's, if you want to reduce the retention, then becoming their friend first and their boss second is, is you know, one of the best ways to, to do it, right? Um, okay, let, let, let's pivot a little bit to entrepreneurship because all of you in some capacity have started stuff. You know, you, you're currently running a startup. You know, you've launched multiple startups. I know you've been involved like, in the investing startups before and that obviously running a, you know, a big company. What, what advice would you give to people that are perhaps wanting to start something? Because it's, um, it's, it's a big step, right, going from working as an employee to then owning a company and being a founder and, and an entrepreneur. And I know we've got many entrepreneurs in the audience tonight uh, and you will, I can attest to the, the pain and the blood and the sweat and tears it, it really does take. But for you guys that are, have been through that journey, perhaps with more grey hairs than I have got, um, what, what recommendations would you give to people that want to start something and how to be successful a, a, as an entrepreneur? The hardest topic in, in the world to, to summarise in a minute, but We'll give it a go. Um, why don't you start? You got the mic. Uh, kick us off. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's no one size fits all for this. But from my perspective, I feel like the more books you read about entrepreneurship and the more information um, that you you take in, I think almost the worse it is, <laughs> um, because you can end up overthinking it. You can end up um, worrying about things and. You solve problems and you build companies by doing, and you do it by testing and learning. So for me, I'd say just get out there and start doing it. Start testing and learning, start validating, start speaking to customers. Just take a small step and accumulate that every day and see where it goes. Um, but I almost feel like today there's this whole information um, overload around what you have to do and how many things you got to get in order before you can actually start a company. And it almost leaves people in analysis paralysis. Um, so for me, it's, it's just start and have a test and learn mindset. I was literally going to say the same thing about uh, paralysis by analysis or whatever the, whatever the term is, right? It's so true. I mean, everybody talks about it, but, you know, actually starting it and doing it is a very, very different thing. What, what, what would you say, Chris? I think starting a company is, is fundamentally... It's, an, it's a mindset that's, that's very different from being an employee in a company, firstly. So... I would say, make sure you really want to do it. Speaking as someone who is doing it, make sure you that that is actually something you really want to do. You just don't don't just love the idea of having started a company or having done a good job of a company. You know, make sure you actually want to go through the pain and the the blood and the sweat of actually starting because it is hard. Um, I would echo what you were saying earlier about uh, just just get going. That's really important. Uh, I think one thing you did point out though about validating and, and talking to customers is it, that's the biggest thing I would say is that so many people have a great solution they have a great idea that's where we tend to start you know we think oh we've got a brilliant idea of a product that's going to change the world or something make the world a better place um, or whatever it is and and ultimately the chances are you're wrong about your idea you know you you, you almost certainly are um, the, the general idea might be right but you'll need to change it you'll need to pivot two-thirds I think of companies pivot before they to get to the final thing that works um, into a different idea. So the most important thing you can do 
is figure out ways of validating that the idea actually exists, that you actually have a solution that matches a customer problem, that you deeply understand that customer problem, and, and do that before you build anything. Um, don't hire a bunch of engineers, don't blow your savings, don't even quit your job at this point. You can do all of that without even changing your day-to-day life. You can, you can understand the problem, you can talk to customers, you can validate whether or not your idea might be any good. Um, if you don't want to do that, then don't start a company. I'd agree with that, absolutely. Everyone's got a side domain, right? I buy one every single week. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's such an amazing feeling when you buy one. And then after you get the renewal a year later, you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> I haven't done anything with this. Um, Kit, what, what, what would you say for people wanting to start a business? Uh, yeah, I mean, nothing that I wouldn't add to what these two have just said. Um, my, my, my normal rule is if it feels like fantasy, then it's wrong. Um, you need to distill it to the most boring, pragmatic distillation of whatever it is you think that's so exciting. And then that's going to be more likely what it's actually going to be. Um, yeah, I'd say, so there's that. I think people underplay timing and luck in this. So obviously in hindsight, there's a great story of how it all worked out, but fundamentally I think timing and luck is about 75% of the answer. So there is something into that, which is have a look around. I know people who a year ago were like, oh, I've got this, I've gone, I've gone all in, I've quit my well-paid corporate job, I'm doing this thing. And I remember saying to them, yeah, it's gonna be really hard to raise money. It was just, it was an obvious fact. And guess what? It's really hard for them to raise money. So no matter how good their idea is, they are like you know selling their own clothes right now to try and you know, keep the lights on. Um, and then the final thing, which I think a lot of people uh, also underplay, is um, is basically fitness. So you know if you don't have physical fitness, mental fitness, then all you're doing is like plowing in. It's that endurance point from all you know you're just you're burning yourself out early, and then you're not you're not sustaining yourself. This is a thing that's going to go on for years and years. And so things like fitness will keep you in the, in the straight and narrow and help you through the hard times, get your sleep in, all the rest of it. You know, it's not a case anymore of I'm sleeping under my desk. I did 23 hours straight today because that just you just pile in after a while and then you're no use to anyone. So, yeah. OK, Let, let's pivot to uh, the future a little bit. Cutting edge tech, what's happening? AI is obviously taken over the world, um, you know, since GPT was released. I mean, that's been like the number one tech conversation, right, about where that's going. Just by show of hands, who, who's using AI in some capacity in their company right now? Okay. Who's pretending to? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very much a marketing thing for, for, you know, but we are seeing more and more companies actually using it. Not, not just like a GPT wrapper, but like actually, um, you know, deploying it. What about you guys in terms of like, obviously you have an AI company, Chris, you know, so you might be, uh, you know, a little bit, a good, good person to start this. Um, what, what are your views on it as a technology, general thoughts? How are you using it in your company? Where do you see it going in the future? I had this chat with um, Harry Stebbings, uh, the, the podcaster investor recently. He said 85% of AI companies raising right now will be gone in like a year. Uh, it's probably right. I'd probably say it's closer to 95%. Um, we all know what happens with trends and hypes. They come, blockchain, blockchain, metaverse, web free, web free, and then it's all gone. NFTs, do you remember them? Yeah, I still got some NFTs. I, I almost gave my, my mum an NFT for a Christmas gift one year, but <laughs> I realised that was not going to work. Um, 
AI, what's, what's your view, Chris, and uh, how can it change or, or delete the world? I gave my son, my 12-year-old then son, 200 Dogecoin for a joke once, and then about seven years later was scrabbling around trying to find it so I could sell it because it was worth so much money. Anyway, I mean, these trends have a habit of kind of coming and going, and then they come back again in a big way and no one expected it. But I think with AI, I think that there is, there's a couple of things in it that I'm much more excited about than say blockchain. I, I always thought the blockchain was a solution, still really looking for a problem. It, it does have some fundamental um, uh, challenges, um, which, are, which are being worked on, and there are lots of smart people who are actively trying to fix the carbon footprint, for example. There's lots of, there's lots of things there, but never really saw a kind of a, a use case. With GPT, on the other hand, there's a very clear product that, that works and adds value instantly in something like ChatGPT, which was which took the world by storm, as we all know. And then everybody decided that they were going to reorient their business overnight. And I think an awful lot of product managers heard from their founders and CEOs that they needed to rip up the roadmap. And it's probably very frustrating. Um, I think uh, what's interesting about it is that, yes, anyone can build a, a GPT wrapper, and that sounds very exciting, but it's also a big disadvantage because anyone can build a, a GPT wrapper, anyone can use this tech. So you have to make sure that you've got an idea that really differentiates. It's kind of back to what I was saying before. It's a big old um, hammer that you can use for all sorts of different things. What customer problem are you solving using AI, and how is that going to actually make anyone any money? If you can't figure that out, then don't use it. It's not worth it yet. But ultimately, I think the corollary to that is that AI is this this advance that we're seeing in transformers um, and both text and image and, and video and, and 3D is all coming. Uh, I, I do think fundamentally that something has shifted. I do agree that this is, as, I, I think it's as big as the internet for sure, um, possibly as big as the microprocessor, um, although I'm not quite old enough to remember that, that, um, that particular trend or dynamic. But I think I, I do think that it is big, but no one really knows what it is yet, and it's still emerging, and we're we're probably five, ten years off from knowing that. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. It's definitely worth understanding, but stick to stick to customer problems. Figure out how you're uh, how you're making um, making their lives better. How you're adding value, and focus on that. And focus on what's defensible about your idea that somebody else can't just come along with a smart team and, and replicate what you're doing. That's really important. I mean, you need a moat, don't you? You need, you need a, something which a 14-year-old kid in, in Iowa in his basement can't copy overnight. I mean, uh, the, the thing about AI and, and like, you know, with, with all the, the, the money it costs to, 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 to buy the tech to, to get it going, I mean, you know, we're trying to find you know, GPUs. It, it's like trying to find drugs. It's probably harder to, to find them right now, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that in itself is, is not a moat, though, is it? You need, you need a competitive advantage outside of that. Absolutely, and big tech is going to buy the GPUs before you can afford them. So it's, and especially in the UK, we have a real shortage of, of decent data centers in the UK, and a lot of data that people want to train these things on is UK only. You want to keep it inside the UK. So really challenging place to, to kind of exist at the moment. Hey, really quick video just to give you a free subscription to Coda magazine. Coda is the number one publication for all the latest tech news, expert insights, and exclusive industry interviews. With Coda, you get the inside scoop on what's happening with Elon Musk, with Bill Gates, with Jeff Bezos, with Mark Zuckerberg, and so much more. So if you work in the technology industry, then I'd highly recommend that you give Coda a read today. Just scan the QR code on the screen for free access now, or go to welovealpha.com forward slash magazine to get your free subscription today. Uh, Kit, what, what would your opinion on artificial intelligence be, sir? I mean, I have to 
consider slightly what I say here, um, given that I'll have your results are out next week. Um, so, look, I think the, totally right, I, I'd always think about being on the side of the picks and shovels, right? I mean, so much easier just to find a way to complement the, the coming wave and the trend. Um, I'd be quite worried if I was trying to go direct, you know, head on head with what's coming because the pace of change, the amount of business model disruption that's going to be wrought is actually unpredictable. You, know, you, you won't know it, so it's like focus on the one low-hanging use case at a time. Yeah. Um, is it a complement to your business or is it just going to destroy it? That would be something. Maybe ask yourself the question whether there's a slightly different market industry you can focus in. For example, manufacturing has never been very sexy, but it's a lot more um, disruption-proof right now than a you know, software company. So something to think about. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting, obviously, depending on the size and scale of your business, is I, I, it's, it's easy to assume the unit cost of getting started is going to go down very quickly. Therefore, it, there shouldn't be that many barriers to entry to spinning things up, testing, failing, moving on. That's great. Um, likewise, if you've got scale, you know, us, for example, we are looking at how we can deploy AI quite aggressively inside, inside the organization, and there will be big efficiency gains as a result, productivity gains. That's great. That's ultimately the way it's going to go. So um, I think it's quite exciting, but yeah, I'd just be very, very, very mindful about where I'm starting. Well, you said an interesting point there around people being scared, you know, excited, you know, whatever. Let, let's just poll everybody for a second, right? Put your hand up in a second if you're more scared by AI, and then we'll do excited. So we'll do scared first, and then excited. So who's leaning towards scared in the audience? Okay, and then everybody else is excited. So probably about 75% excited, okay, which is good. I mean, ho hopefully that's not hopium, hopefully that, that is the way it pans out, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, what would your view be, AI? Yeah, so I think the way I look at it is what the current LLMs and AI tools out there enable, can enable every single company to do right now is pretty much everyone has a data layer, um, data sources, databases, and then you have some kind of app or product on the top that's delivering some value to your customer. Um, where I see you can add immediate value now with, with LLMs and tools like Langchain is convert converting those data sources into, um, into a vector data source so that it can be queryable by language. Um, and what that allows you to do is essentially in a way, AI helps you to build that analytics layer really quickly. So I think what analysts used to do um, and the whole kind of product stream around how do I get insights from, from my data um, I feel a lot of companies are missing that boat right now. You can very easily take the data you have, um, use the power of LLMs um, and frameworks like Langchain and deliver customer value through these insights. And that's also where your moat is because you're doing this based on proprietary data. Um, so I'm surprised at how few companies um, have caught on to this. Like for me, the current state of the art is replacing analyst, and it can replace a lot of business intelligence tools as well. So even internally, um, if you set up your data sources in the right way, you could have a chatbot-like tool where your internal employees can basically query and find out any data they need for their day-to-day -day job instead of using a BI tool. Um, and 
I think the frameworks out there are at a stage where you can do this in weeks, yeah. not months or years right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I know startups that have been doing that from like almost day one, like getting it ready to go. So when they start putting in the data, it's ready to query. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what was the last hype before AI? I think mean, semiconductors was like after AI, wasn't it? That kind of came in and went after the, that video went viral. But before was like the metaverse. Everyone rem remember the metaverse? Everyone, right. Who is like a big believer of the metaverse still and still thinks that in the future it might take off and we might be living in VR and AR, XR, that sort of thing? I, um, I can't wait for the Apple Vision Pro. I think it's gonna be really exciting, but I do think it's gonna take a bit of time for it to become you know, mainstream. Um, what are your views, chaps, on, on the metaverse, on VR, XR, AR? Bit of a long list of terms and categories. Spatial computing, we'll throw that in there as well. Um, what are your points of view? So we'll, we'll start with yourself, uh, Kenshin. To be honest, it's not, it's not a space that I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, I've, I've been ed tech and climate tech, and I don't think I've seen many use cases for VR and metaverse. I know people are trying to use the metaverse for education, and there's potentially some interesting um, scenarios. But what I would say is when I did explore the, the space briefly is, briefly is that I didn't find a use case for VR and metaverse that wasn't a game. So pretty much everything out there, all the exciting metaverse tools, all the exciting metaverse applications, they were games, but they weren't solving real life problems. Mm. And I think that's the kind of key moment that it needs as soon as someone finds a real life use case that it's going to solve. Yeah. For, for me, it's if it can replace the smartphone. Because if you have got something on your head which has got notifications and maps and texts and everything else in between, then and it replaces the majority use of the smartphone, then I can see it working. If it doesn't, then it, I, I agree, it's a gaming device and that's what it will remain as. What, what's your view, Chris? I'm really interested in the space, but, uh, but I'm similar. I don't really see a compelling use that's not very specialized. So I have a friend who, who um, helps run a company that uh, is doing uh, VR for surgeons. So the idea of being able to remotely operate on someone, and that's fascinating. And I think that's that's probably quite niche and, and is not, is not, not Zuckerberg's vision of the kind of uh, VR or metaverse for all, I think, which is slightly different. Um, I, I'm fascinated by it. I don't think the hardware's yet. Apple's um, device is looks amazing. I haven't got any inside info on it. I, I will try it out. I'll see what it's like. Uh, but I'm, I'm waiting probably another 10 years uh, until the hardware is there. So there are fascinating companies that are building hardware into contact lenses. Don't really want to put one of those, those in my eyes yet, but you know, the CEO apparently is, is doing so. Uh, you know, that's quite interesting. I think, I think the hardware has to take probably you know, a couple of orders of magnitude leaps in, in terms of its, its um, simplicity. I want it to be like just wearing a pair of glasses. I'm much more interested in AR than I am in, in VR or XR, which I think is mixed reality, right? Or the idea of, of augmenting what I'm seeing. I don't really like being taken out of the place that I'm in. I've always found it fascinating to, to kind of see, uh, to see the, the world around me, the, the physical world around me uh, uh, augmented in some way or have information out of that, which is why I, qu I quite like what Apple's doing with the Vision Pro. I think that they're... They're onto something with some of their usability. I think the hardware I mean, is very clever. I, I still think there's a long way to go. But uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think there is something in it. I think it's a, a reasonable way off. It's decades off for me. Who, who owns a, like a meta quest in the audience? Who's got like, like a, yeah, a, okay. Not many people, okay. I think that kind of says it for itself already. But Kit finishes off metaverse. In, in a few years, are we gonna be living in, in Mark Zuckerberg's virtual world? Or are we going to be speaking face to face as humans? 
Uh, I hope we're not. I hope we're not. <laughs> it's, it's slightly depressing. Um, yeah, actually, for, for our company, it's actually something we're looking at with the AR because, long story short, we, um, we automate, we digitize frontline work. So not like most people in this room, people sit by on laptops with people who are actually interacting in the world, NHS workers, people work in manufacturing plants, etc. And I think there is a use case there for AR because that is a natural extension of where we're going. That, I think that makes sense. But knowing the kind of buying environment as I do, they need to get the, the unit cost of that hardware down significantly because you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to drive productivity for relatively low pay workers on an enterprise scale if they're going to have to spend a lot of money to equip every single person with one of those devices. So we'll have to do something about that. But I could see that being a real enhancement for the quality of life of a frontline worker. Absolutely. So I think that could actually be a really positive use case. Um, for myself, I really don't want to get involved in that on a personal basis. I think we all spend enough time indoors as it is. I guess I can't see myself doing 24 hours a day online, but there you go. I think the, the thing that's tied to the metaverse, but, but is, um, well, it, it tried to connect itself to it, but was perhaps the hype beforehand was, was obviously the blockchain, right? Um, which has still got many, many use cases, and um, I'm perhaps more optimistic about that than you know, some of the other things. But what, well, same question, basically. Like, let's just go through all of the, all of the hype. You know, what, what, what are your views on, on blockchain, crypto? And if, I mean, I know, I know these are separate categories, and I, I don't want to merge them all into one. Um, but the, the, the blockchain itself, what, what are your opinions? Are you using it at all? Is anybody in the audience using like, blockchain tech in their companies, just, just by show of hands? Nobody. Okay, well then, maybe we've answered the question, but um, what are your views on, on, on the blockchain? Um, what, why don't you start with self kit We'll kind of work backwards. Um, yeah, so actually, I, it's quite interesting. I, I kind of got into the crypto space, I know it was probably about uh, 12 years ago or something like this, when I was set up a sort of frontier markets investment firm. And, you know, I ended up going to a... Um, one of the first, you know, Bitcoin global conventions in uh, Amsterdam, actually, in the red light district in some weird old theatre. It was quite, a, um, quite an interesting experience, right? They were like, setting fire to $10 notes down with fiat, all this kind of good stuff. It doesn't sound like a crypto conference. It sounds like something else. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, yeah, crypto stroke, you know, sex party. It was a very odd, <laughs> odd looking place, people with bowler hats. Um, the thing is, at the time, and I think it's actually been, been borne out since, I think, you know, amazingly powerful tool, great revolution, all the rest of it. Um, the, the, the cynical side of me recognises the fact that, you know, central governments, central banks are built, predicated on power and control. And I could never quite get in with the full enthusiasm because, as we've seen, you, you need to be able to control the money supply in whichever format that goes. I think the same thing applies to the underlying framework and blockchain. So I imagine what will eventually happen is it's run by governments as it's being directed towards now and, and, and then, then you'll see like use case adoption starting to become real as opposed to fantasy. Yeah, some kind of like CDC sort of thing will, will probably happen. I think there are some countries that have already, you know, um, you know either tied their currency to it or, or tried to do that itself. Was it Venezuela or, or someone tried to do it recently? Um, but yeah, uh, why don't we go to yourself? Uh, what are your views on the blockchain? It's, it's, it's interesting, and I think somewhat ironically that the blockchain being decentralized um, is actually only going to be successful if centralized authorities start to use it. 
Um, and there's a lot of examples of this. And I think a few people here mentioned governments starting to use it, but not just for currency, for actual use cases where a blockchain can replace um, a database. Because um, a, lot, a lot of things I look out there, I, I look out there that I see companies using a blockchain. I'm like, well, you could just use a, bit, a database for that. Um, you're, again, you're just trying to find, um, you know, uh, you, you're trying to find a problem to match the tech that you have. Um, but for an example, um, China implemented the blockchain for their legal system, uh, or not their not their blockchain, but their blockchain. For the legal system in the country, that means every document submitted in a court in China has an immutable record in this blockchain that will live forever and is a source of truth. And that's really powerful because it now means that everyone is forced to use it um, and that there is that trust built over time because it is a central authority that has, in a way, said we validate this blockchain, this is the source of truth, this is how we're going to make decisions in our, in our court cases. Um, so I actually don't see the blockchain being adopted unless there is central authorities that try to adopt it. Like a, like a, a use case that's a no-brainer for me is, is property deeds, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, there's, to see the history of every single property and land in the UK, for example, there's a great argument to have that in a central blockchain, but that needs to be adopted, um, I assume, by the government of England, uh, of the UK. So I, I think there's, there's too many blockchains out there. Um, nobody really knows which one to trust. Nobody knows which one is good for each use case. And there isn't going to be adoption in the private sector unless it comes from more central authority. And, and this, is prob uh, this is probably a very divisive opinion. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree on it, would agree on it because it almost goes against the decentralized philosophy of the blockchain. But from what I've seen, the best use cases and where it's actually been adopted the most is when it's come from a central authority. Yeah, I don't, I don't see governments giving up money anytime soon. I don't know about you guys, but um, I think the use case around property is an excellent one because like with Ethereum and smart contracts, it's all self-executing. That is a no-brainer from, from that perspective. So um, you mentioned Doge earlier, Chris. Um, I was looking at my blockchain uh, crypto portfolio recently and um, everything has basically lost money apart from Doge. So like, like thank you to, to, to Miss Musk for that one. But, um, you know, bought in at the, the top of the hype, really, and then, uh, then look what happened. But cycles, cycles, obviously. What, what's your view, Chris? So I mined almost, I think, just over a million Doge in 2014 and, and sold it all uh, for a few thousand pounds, which I was quite pleased about. It paid for the cost of the machine that, that mined it. But I think it was probably worth between half and one million pounds um, if I'd sold it at the top of the market. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but what's interesting about that is that, you know, that sounds terrible, but it's, that's, just, that's just how markets work, right? And I think what's interesting about, uh, about cryptocurrency specifically is that it feels like a bunch of people have just kind of tr have rediscovered all of the kind of standard laws of the financial system over the last decade or so, and, and often with terrible consequences for, for people. I mean, I've read, read posts on Reddit with some person saying, oh, yeah, you know, I heard that this thing was good, so I sold my house, and then I bought Bitcoin, um, and now it seems to have gone down a lot. What do I do? <laughs> and you just think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is, this is one of the fundamental issues. It was the Wild West of currency, yet there were people who didn't know any better um, who were really burnt very badly, and that's that's really bad. So it's not surprising that we're now seeing the kind of gradual uh, process by which 
these new techs are regulated. And I think that's actually a good thing. Um, I think it has to happen because this is what happens when it doesn't happen, if that makes sense. So, so in terms of, in terms of um, I guess, blockchain more, more specifically, I think that the fundamental idea, the idea of a sort of a cryptographic uh, proof of a shared distributed uh, piece of information that can be trusted um, through a kind of an alternate means of trust that is, is placed within a community, that is an incredibly clever invention. I mean, I, I read the original papers and, and, and they are so good. They're so clever, the way that, that you know, it's such a clever idea. Uh, and I think we haven't quite, it's similar really, we haven't quite figured out what that means yet and, and what, how to actually use it. I think we're, we're closer though than we are with, with say, uh, Transformers um, uh, with, with uh, GPT and AI. Uh, because as you say, you know, the idea of, I hadn't heard of that, I, that point about legal documents in China, that's, that's fascinating. And, and a really good example of, okay, if we have this fundamental idea where you can distribute trust um, and you can record things immutably for all time, uh, and and you can prove ownership. That's very pow- uh, powerful and valuable. Uh, we haven't quite figured out what to do with it yet. Um, there are there are some obvious UK cases there are, which we talked about. There are some non-obvious ones. It's something I'm I'm not implementing, but I'm watching uh, for the same reasons as some of the other texts that we've talked about. Fundamental idea, really strong. Not sure what's going to happen to it yet. Hey, thanks for watching this podcast. Make sure that you like, subscribe, follow, comment, etc., etc. And I'll see you in the next episode.